Uh, so Titus chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 to 4 together this morning. I was talking to my mom a couple weeks back, and she just recently switched uh, from her job as an ER nurse to some kind of management role within the hospital. I don't fully understand what she's doing. I'm not sure she fully understands what she's doing yet, but she's nevertheless quite excited about her new job. But the transition and training period has been somewhat intense, and at the moment she's just kind of trying to figure out uh, what exactly she's supposed to do and get her bearings and uh, figure out how to succeed in her new role. Have you ever started a task or a job without fully understanding what role you play or where your role fits in with all the other roles and the bigger picture or not understanding what exactly you're supposed to be doing or what success looks like or how to measure it or how to be effective? Not knowing the answers to those questions can be frustrating. Christians have been tasked with the ministry of the gospel. You might say that you're a, you are a gospel minister. That's your job, we might say. In fact, it, in many ways, it's the primary reason that God left you here on earth. And, and by doing that, you bring glory to God as you serve as a gospel minister. However, many Christians don't understand the nuts and bolts of that calling. And consequently, ministry is often not as effective as it could be. Don't you want to be effective in gospel ministry? How do we do that? In our text today, Paul reminds a man by the name of Titus of the nuts and bolts of ministry so that Titus can be effective as he labors for the Lord. And Paul uh, helps Titus along actually by explaining to Titus his own role as a minister. Paul's going to talk about himself and his own calling as a minister of the gospel because as Paul talks about his own role, he's really talking about a role that Titus shared as well and that in many ways you and I share too. Titus, if you don't know much about this little book, Titus was a Gentile convert. When I say Gentile, uh, that would be uh, basically the Bible talks about Jews and Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Titus was a Gentile convert who trusted Christ and then served and traveled with the Apostle Paul. And it would seem that the gospel actually arrived before Paul and Titus did on the island of Crete. And that churches were starting to be formed and uh, it were probably really exciting. But at that time, those churches seemed to lack leadership, and they were apparently very susceptible to false teaching. But an awesome situation going on in Crete where you probably have a lot of new believers, and these churches are getting off the ground, and there's probably a lot of life. Maybe at the same time, not a whole lot of spiritual maturity yet. And so after a brief visit to the island of Crete, Paul actually left Titus there. We read that in verse 5. Paul explains, this is why I left you, Titus, in Crete. Paul leaves him there to continue ministering. So Titus, as this letter is written, is about to embark on a brand new phase of ministry. And as I mentioned, it's exciting. But at the same time, it's going to have some challenges. And so Paul writes back to Titus to help him along. Like Titus, because your eternal effectiveness depends on it, you need to remember the nuts and bolts of ministry. So let's look at this text. I want to read Titus 1, 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with or leads to godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus 
my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to look this morning at a few reminders for ministry about the nuts and bolts of ministry. Actually, six of them that we want to consider each one briefly this morning. The first is to remember the role in which you labor. If you look back at verse 1, Paul's just going to start by explaining who he is. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself with two descriptive titles. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that one of your greatest dangers as a minister of the gospel is that you would view yourself the wrong way? And by the way, when I say minister of the gospel, you might look at me and go, well, you're a minister of the gospel. You're a pastor, right? We, we often refer to pastors as ministers. But the reality is, while that's certainly true, all of us are ministers of the gospel. And one of your greatest dangers in that role is that you would view yourself the wrong way. Who you understand yourself to be is of critical importance as you engage in ministry. You are a slave. And you are, perhaps I could word it this way, a sent one. One who has been sent out by God. You are God's slave. Paul identifies himself first as a servant or slave of God. Christianity is a master-slave relationship. To be God's slave means several things. It means that you are exclusively owned by God. We know from Scripture it says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were purchased. It means that you should live in complete submission to God. You have a master and you're supposed to submit to him. And you should be singularly devoted to God. When you wake up in the morning as a slave, you wake up recognizing when your feet hit the floor that I have a master, I have a Lord, and I'm here today to do my master's bidding, whatever it is he wants. Fully devoted to him. It also means you're totally dependent on God. Slaves would be dependent on their masters really for everything. And you're also personally accountable to God. You are a slave. And that may, you may not like that idea, but the reality is, uh, before coming to Christ, you were a slave. You were a slave to your sin and you were in bondage to it. And now having come to Christ, if you know him as your Savior, he's liberated you from all that and made you his slave. It's a privilege to be his slave. You are a minister 24-7. This is life. And so you want to remember your role. You are God's slave. We could also say you are God's sent one. Next, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Who were the apostles? Well, you think of the the 12 disciples minus Judas. Uh, Also, the apostle Paul, Christ appeared to him along the road and, and summoned him to salvation and commissioned him. The apostles were men who had been commissioned by Jesus Christ and sent forth as his official messengers. Unlike Paul. Uh, Titus, you and I, we are not apostles. The apostles stepped off the scene in the first century. But we're still, we could say, ones who have been sent. We're still people who have been commissioned on a task. You have been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ as a messenger of the gospel. We call Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what? The, The great, what? The great commission. We've been commissioned. We've been sent out. Let me just read these familiar words to you from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus said to his followers, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. God has sent his people out to the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. All of us as God's people, if we're his children, we have been sent out on a mission. God has sent you. You are God's slave and you are his sent one. And so God wants you to remember the role in which you labor. And Paul's titles, if, if you think about them maybe in a little bit more detail, they actually move from uh, the very broad and general to the more narrow and specific. Generally, he describes himself as a slave, but specifically he says, I'm an apostle. And so I'd ask you, what specific roles, ministry roles, you occupy? Generally, we could say you're a slave. We're all slaves of God. But what about you specifically? What about your uh, specific life roles for ministry? You might say, well, specifically, I'm an employee or a student or I'm a mother or a father. All of us could look at our lives and we all occupy probably a, a couple major roles. And every role that God has given you is a gospel ministry role. And I think God wants us to realize that wherever God puts me, no matter what I'm doing, it's all a gospel ministry role. Life is this ministry. It's this calling to be the slave and servant of God and his sent one. This is all of life. If you've ever played team sports, you've probably played with someone who didn't understand his role. Maybe he was a one-man show and didn't pass the ball or whatever, and as a result, the team wasn't very effective. If you play team sports, it's important that everyone knows their role and their specific duty, what they're supposed to be doing for everyone to succeed. And that would be true in the Christian life and in the church. If you don't understand your role properly as a Christian, you're not going to be effective. And actually, neither will the team, the church. Remember the role in which you labor. You are God's slave and you are his sent one. You've been sent on a mission. And a second reminder, remember the results for which you labor. What are we doing here? What's the goal? What's the purpose of ministry? What are you aiming for in your individual life and in your family and in your home and everywhere that you go and with all the people that you interact with? What are you aiming for individually? And as a, and as a church, what are we aiming for? What are we striving after? By the way, if we get this wrong, it's pretty lethal. Your goal is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and then grow in their knowledge of the truth so that what's produced and what's cultivated at the end of the day is godliness, a person who starts to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Maybe we could break that down a little bit. Your goal is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Paul explains that he is a slave, he is an apostle, he occupies those roles. Why? Well, the next phrase says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, to elect means to choose. God's elect are his chosen people. God has a chosen people. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament with Israel. God has chosen people for salvation. And interestingly, the Bible tells us he did that and he turned past before the foundation of the world. It's a mind-blowing thought. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 explains. It's, it talks about the, the role of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation. And it starts with the Father. And Ephesians 1 verse 4 explains that God the Father chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. And so Paul explains in this passage that your goal is to help those people, God's chosen people, 
that he chose for salvation and eternity past come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, you don't know, you don't have a sweet clue who those people are. And neither do I. And so what do we do? We take this awesome, incredible gospel message and we share it with everyone. Your goal is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, your goal is to see people grow and knowledge of the truth. And in verse 1, Paul continues with these words. He says, for the sake, this is his purpose or goal of ministry, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. One of the goals of ministry is to help people know, understand, and submit to God's word, the truth. To help them know the truth and grow in that knowledge. Why? Why, why do we help try to help people grow in the knowledge of the truth or God's word? Because God's word changes people. And that's where Paul goes next. He goes on to explain that when people know and embrace the truth, when they sit before God's word and they start to understand it better, and not just uh, understanding it mentally, but actually embracing it with their hearts. When people start to do that, we read, uh, Paul explains that when people know and embrace the truth, it accords with, or we could say leads to, godliness. People start to grow in godliness. And so Paul has actually laid out, if you look back at this text, he's kind of laid out this three-step sequence. And step number one is faith. People moving from unbelief to faith. Step number two would be knowledge. They better know the truth of God's word. And step number three is they become godly. Your goal is to see people move through those steps. You're striving to see people move from unbelief to godliness. People who, who are... Um, at odds with God, enemies of God. They're, they haven't been saved. They haven't put their trust in Christ. They're under God's condemnation and deserving of God's judgment for all of eternity in hell. Your goal is to share the good news with them. So they move from unbelief to faith and then from faith to knowledge and from knowledge to godliness. That's our mission. How do you do that? How do you uh, succeed in that mission? What, what has God given you to actually make this happen? How do you do that? And for Titus, how would he do it on the island of Crete? Well, Paul's going to explain some of those sorts of things later in this letter, but two big things emerge in the chapters that come. And Paul mentions to Titus again and again and again. He says, Titus, teach sound doctrine. Teach healthy doctrine. These people on the island of Crete, maybe some have been saved for a while. Perhaps many of them are brand new believers. They're excited, but their spiritual depth is pretty minimal. What do you need to do? Teach them healthy doctrine. Teach them the, this book. And the second big thing I think that he says to Titus that comes out again and again, he keeps telling Titus, be an example of godliness yourself. Show yourself a pattern of good works. And so Titus, he has this truth, he has this knowledge. Now Titus, teach people this and actually live it out. Demonstrate it in your life. If you want to help people grow in the knowledge of the truth, you have to, be know, you have to know and be growing in the truth yourself. It's hard for you to guide or show someone to a place where you haven't gone yourself. Can you imagine trying to give directions for someone to get somewhere in a country you've never been? And you're like, yeah, I think you go this way and it's over there somewhere. <laughs> but if you've actually been there yourself, you have to go down this road, turn right here at this landmark, and then go down at six kilometers and turn left over here, and there's this big landmark over here, and then you're there. Well, you've been there. 
If you're not growing in your knowledge of the truth and you're not growing in godliness, you're probably not going to help others do that. By the way, the theme of Titus is already starting to emerge in the opening verses of this letter. Titus is all about living lives that are different from the world because they have been transformed by the gospel. People go from unbelief, knowledge of the truth, to godliness. There's this transformation that's occurring. In other words, the gospel changes the way that we live. And in fact, I think we could say, um, you know, Paul's not offering Titus a bunch of illustrations here. He's just telling Titus who he is as a minister of the gospel, who Paul is as a minister of the gospel. And I think what's actually going on is Titus is exhibit A of what Paul's talking about. Paul is teaching Titus principles, but the great effect probably lied in the fact that Titus had seen those principles at play in the life of the Apostle Paul, and Titus himself is the result of Paul living by them. Titus was the fruit of Paul laboring to see people come to faith and grow. It's amazing. In fact, in this verse, verse 4, he says, To Titus, my true child. And what seems to be implied there is when he's calling him his spiritual child, it's very likely that Titus came to faith under Paul's ministry. And now Paul's investing in Titus and mentoring him and teaching him healthy doctrine and being an example of that to Titus. And now he's dropping him off on the island of Crete. And Titus is at the point where he can do that now. Titus doesn't need an an illustration of this. Titus is the illustration. Paul is the illustration. And that's how it should be in the church. These relationships that end up being much like what we see with Paul and Titus. Remember the results for which you labor. Your goal is to see people come to faith in Christ and then grow in the knowledge of the truth. A a third reminder, remember the people for whom you labor. They are a very, very special people. In fact, they're God's chosen people. Think about how much God loved Israel in the Old Testament and his people in the New Testament. You labor, Paul says, Paul explains who he labors for. Paul says, I labor for the sake of the faith of who? God's elect, and you labor for those same people. You labor for God's chosen people. Those, when we talk about God's chosen people, we could talk on both sides of the coin. You labor for those who have not yet come to repentance and faith. And you also labor for those who already have. Ministry is about people and relationships. We talk about the goal being people coming to faith in Christ and knowing the truth, but we could kind of summarize that in one word. What's the goal of ministry? It's people. If your Christian life doesn't involve people and being spiritually related to people, there's something wrong. If your Christian life doesn't involve sharing the gospel with other people and striving to help other people grow, then listen, what that means is you are failing to you are failing the mission. Period. There's there's no way to escape it. If you think of your Christian life as just you and God, or I show up at church and I I hear this, I hear that, I go out, you do not understand this mission. It's all about people. And then coming to faith in Jesus Christ and then growing and developing to look more like Jesus. Your mission is about names and faces. And by the way, we are not just talking about any people. We are talking about people who were not purchased or ransomed with the perishable things such as silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are talking about a people who God sent Jesus Christ to die for and shed his blood for. Do you know what's really hard about the mission? I mean, maybe you're tracking with Paul here and you go, you know what? Okay, I'm a slave of God and I, I've been sent by God on this mission so that people could come to faith in Christ and grow in their knowledge of the truth and become godly. I'm right there with you and, and I want to do that and you start trying and you start living on this mission. What's really hard about the mission? Well, it's people. But don't forget, we're talking about people for which Jesus shed his blood and died and people that Jesus said that the work that I began in you, I'm going to bring that to completion. And we tend to look at the people and we see, yeah, the work's been began, but like it's really far from being finished. And that person's driving me nuts. And oh, I just wish this, that, and the other, or whatever the case may be. And God says, that work I started, I'm going to bring it all the way to completion. These are my people. This ministry to God's people then is a great, great privilege. You read through the Old Testament. I don't know if you ever read through just in your personal reading and you're in the, the Pentateuch, the first five chapters, and you're like, why are these, there all these chapters and verses on the priesthood and, and what they were doing and what they were wearing? For example, Exodus 28, you have a whole chapter that describes the garments of the Old Testament priests. I mean, you may read through them and be like, okay, so he wore this, he wore that. I don't know. That's nice. Sure, it looked great. Why did God give us that stuff? When the high priest entered the holy place on behalf of the people, he, he entered there in all this special garb. And one of the things that he was wearing was the, this breast piece. And, and, and that part of his garment actually had 12 stones in rows uh, right, right on his chest. And they, they were actually jewels. You have diamonds and sapphires and other gems that he's wearing right there on his heart. And each one of those stones actually had a name engraved on it. Twelve stones, 12, 12 names, each of the tribes of Israel. And it's interesting, by the time we get to the New Testament, we're told that this whole priesthood business, it was all portraying and picturing something that was to come. And you get to the book of Hebrews, and we learn about the final perfect high priest, and who is he? None other than Jesus Christ. And when the Old Testament priest entered the holy place, he went there with a people on his heart. He went there representing a people. He carried and represented God's chosen people on his heart. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the final perfect priest and that he has entered the Holy of Holies. He's entered the holy place and he too, like the Old Testament priests, has a chosen special people that he carries on his heart. And if those people, those chosen people are special to Jesus, then they should be special to you. And they should be special to me. And so we're reminded here to think about and remember the people for whom you labor. God left you here on earth and put you on this mission to benefit the people of God. The people engraved on the heart of Jesus Christ. And at some point it comes down to this. Are the people who are important to Jesus important to you? Are the people that rest and sit on the heart of Jesus, are those people, do they rest and sit on your heart? And do you care about them? Jesus shed his blood and died for them. And he wants you to turn around and live on mission in a way that demonstrates that same kind of love for the people of God. Fourth reminder from this passage, remember the basis 
on which you labor. Look at verse 2. Paul explains, here's my role and here's my purpose. And then he explains that all of this happens, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. You labor in hope of eternal life. This is the basis for all of your labors in ministry. Why do you labor? Why would you try to do these things? You labor because God promised something. He promised eternal life and you have that confident hope and expectation about that eternal life and that it's real and that you possess it and that it's coming. And while you possess it now, a day day is coming where that will reach its fruition. And you will enjoy that eternal life in its fullness. And on the flip side of that, there are people who will literally experience the exact opposite of that. Eternal condemnation and destruction. Why do you labor? You labor because God promised eternal life. Behind your labors is the hope, or we might say confident expectation of God's promise of eternal life. One writer said of Paul that central within his role, the reason deatra of his ministry is the hope of eternal life. That's what's driving him. God promised it. And by the way, something that might just encourage your own heart as a Christian, that promise of eternal life, which uh, God made, as we'll see in eternity past, and has made known in his word through the gospel, that's been promised by God. And then we're told that he doesn't lie. It's an unbreakable promise. If you have this promise, if you have this hope of the gospel, that is tied to God's inerrant, infallible word. His unbreakable bond. And when did he make this promise of eternal life? Well, we get the idea from this text that he made it in eternity past before people like you and I ever existed. That he made this promise before there were any people to make it to. Uh, It says that he promised before the ages began. So apparently this promise was made, presumably between the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's plan to save people and give them eternal life. God's promise of eternal life becomes the driving motivation for ministry. God promised it, and you proclaim it. Look at verse 3. Paul explains, and at the proper time, basically when God saw fit, he manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God at the proper time made his gospel known through the gospel and through his word and then entrusted Paul with publicly proclaiming it. I'm not going to say much about this at this moment, but I think we could spend a lot of time on this verse and just highlight the fact that about the importance of the public proclamation of the word of God and the gospel. Uh, This mission goes forward on that preaching. And Paul had been specifically entrusted to publicly proclaim it. The word uh, for preaching there very much conveys that idea of public proclamation. It's your privilege to proclaim eternal life. God commissioned Paul to do it publicly, to proclaim what he had promised. You may not... Uh, be a public preacher or herald of the word of God. God hasn't called most people in this room to that role specifically. But you have been tasked with proclaiming the promise of eternal life. And what God promised we proclaim. You have this great hope. You have this great confidence because God promised something. And now he wants you to go out and share it with others. Remember the basis on which you labor. You labor in hope of eternal life. It's real. And a fifth reminder, remember, and I think this is simple but so important, remember the friends with whom you labor. 
Look at verse 4. Paul explains who he is, and then in verse 4, he, he just says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. That There's a warmth and an intimacy to those words. Paul is writing as a spiritual father, and he's writing to his spiritual son. And these two men recognize, I think both of them, that they have something common. They have a common faith, and you might think common as an ordinary, but that's not the idea or meaning of that word. It's common as in shared. He writes to Titus, his true son in a shared faith. They share the same faith in Jesus Christ, the same hope in Jesus Christ. The gospel has brought these two men together as partners in ministry. Funny thing is, Paul left Titus in Crete. Come on, Paul, I thought, <laughs> like, here I am, we're on this mission together, you dropped me off in Crete, and you left. Don't miss this, though, even though Titus is all alone on the island of Crete, he's actually not alone. First of all, he has the Lord and the Holy Spirit. But in terms of other people, he, he still has Paul. Paul is supporting Titus from a world away. They're laboring in this together, and I, I think we have this very basic reminder that ministry is a joint effort. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, that two are better than one, and that principle can, can be applied to so many different situations. It's certainly true of ministry, and you don't want to forget that. As you labor for the Lord, why would you do that alone? You need others who will help you as you minister. Titus had Paul. Someone who was older and wiser and more seasoned and someone that he, he looked up to and respected and, and was helping him along the way. Apparently, Paul helped Titus move from a, a brand new believer to now the guy who's leading other people. You need others who will help you as you minister, perhaps mentors or, or people side by side that you love and trust. You also need to help others as they minister. Paul had Titus. Someone he was investing in and, and supporting as often as possible, you want to do ministry with other people. Why would you do it alone? Like that, that doesn't even make sense. You want to do ministry with other people. Don't forget your friends. You need those people. God's put you in a church. He's given you people so that you can labor together. A man or a woman's ministry, I think we could talk about its fruitfulness, its longevity, its effectiveness, its wisdom, will in many ways hinge on the people that he places around him and chooses to labor with. When the going gets tough or, or wisdom is especially lacking, it's those other people around you that are, that are there to support and help you. In the 1950s, uh, an iconic figure emerged on television, the Lone Ranger. He fought outlaws in the Old West and all, all the rest of that stuff. It was great, right? Well, yeah, but if that title describes you in your Christian life and your ministry endeavors, that's not good. And sadly, for many of God's people, it does describe them. They're kind of going at it alone, or they're pretty isolated, and that's not what God wants. You were never meant to be the lone ranger in the Christian life and in ministry. Remember the friends with whom you labor, and work hard to strengthen those bonds and to maintain them and to build them, because they're priceless. You need them. And a sixth and final reminder, remember the resources by which you labor. When you live on mission and you strive to devote yourself to the ministry that God has called you to, it's not very long before you realize, like, whoa, I am in way over my head. 
And if you never really fully engage, maybe you never feel that way. But, it, but if you're actually saying, okay, yeah, I'm a slave and I'm a servant of God and I'm here on a mission and here is what that mission is and, and I'm here to help people come to faith and then I want to invest in people, help them grow. You start really going at that, it's not long before you're like, oh boy, what have I got myself into? And you feel like perhaps I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do right now or in this situation or I feel overwhelmed or you start to grow tired, weary and depleted. You could feel that way physically, that you're just running out of juice, but you could also feel tired, weary, and depleted spiritually, mentally, emotionally. You could end up feeling depressed, anxious, and stressed. I think what happens is when you start to grasp the magnitude of this ministry, you realize there are no greater stakes than, than in what's going on right here. You may look at your job and go, the stakes are high here and just the ins and outs and all of that and the financials, whatever the case may be. But you start really getting into the ministry, you realize these are people's souls and their eternal destinies and their families and all the rest. And you realize there's a lot on the line here. And with that comes a weight and perhaps anxiety and stress. Or you also, as you engage in that, you may get hurt by the very people that you care about and that you've invested in. Or you may watch people you've invested in turn around and go the other way. Or, or you may feel like someone stabs you in the back and people hurt you. Our great calling to ministry has highs unlike anything else. Because remember, there, there's nothing on the line like there is in ministry. What a privilege when, when you're sharing the gospel with someone or someone else in church is. And, and that person comes to faith in Christ. We all celebrate that. We rejoice in that or when you're investing in someone spiritually and you're watching them grow in the knowledge of truth and you're seeing godliness start to be cultivated like a plant growing and the fruit showing up on that plant. That's exciting. Our great calling to ministry has highs unlike anything else, but it also has challenges and low points unlike anything else. Titus has a glorious task in front of him. He's the guy that gets to go to Crete. But it's not necessarily going to be an easy task. Maybe there's lots of new believers. Churches are getting started, but those churches could be in a complete and total state of disarray. We gather that there's lots of false teachers on the island and people are kind of falling prey to them. That's probably creating strife and conflict and tension within the church. Knowing what lies ahead of Titus, Paul's simple greeting in verse 4 is loaded with significance. And Paul has greetings like this in almost all of his letters, but I think we should think about it in the context of Paul writing to Titus as he embarks on his task. Look at verse 4 again. To Titus, my true child, and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. That's Paul's wish for Titus. Titus, may you have God's grace and peace as you labor. But it's more than a wish, isn't it? Because it can be a reality. Both of those are available to you. Both were available to Titus. God gives grace. He grants his favor. He gives his divine enablement to help you labor in ministry. And who does God give this grace to? Well, we know elsewhere from Scripture that he gives it to the humble. Those who know they need it. And those who go seeking for it. James 4 verse 6 says of God that he gives more grace. It's grace heaped upon grace. It's almost like God's, God's describing himself. I'm the type of God that backs up the dump truck and just unloads grace upon grace upon grace on you. God gives more grace. 
James 4, verse 6 says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where your road ends is where the road of grace begins. When you realize, I don't have what I need. I'm at the end of myself. God's grace is there. And it's those people to whom God gives it. And God also gives peace. Ministry can be tumultuous and stressful, can't it? And I'm not just talking about pastoral ministry. I'm talking about your ministry. Here at Beaumont Baptist Church with the people you know and love, right in your home with your family. It can be tumultuous and stressful. The people and situations of ministry will weigh on your heart, perhaps keeping you up at night and waking you before your alarm goes off. And your heart very well might become heavy and burdened with people. People you love, people you care about, people who you want to know God and walk with Him and look like Jesus. God has a special gift for you. Two special gifts based on this text, grace and peace. He can give you the tranquility of soul and quietness of soul you need when ministry is tough. And when things haven't quite gone right, or or there are dangers and troubles and discouraging things on on the horizon, God can put your soul at peace and keep you steadily resolved to just press forward. And so we go to the Lord and we say, God, would you give me that grace? Would you give me that peace? Give your burdens to the Lord and let him do the heavy lifting. Have you ever showed up for something and then you realize you left what you needed at home? <laughs> Such a frustrating experience. I hate it when I do that and I do it often. Have you ever showed up at the pool and realized, oh man, I forgot my trunks. <laughs> this is awful. I can't swim in my jeans. I guess I'll just sit here. Or maybe what many of you have done, you showed up at the job site You drove 30 minutes to get there, and upon arrival, you looked in your truck and you realized, I I forgot my tools, or I packed a bunch of them, but I literally forgot the one, the single most important tool I need for the task. I can't even start. Or like me, have you ever showed up for hunting, and then you realize that you forgot your gloves and your toque? A couple years ago, I drove three hours up north to go hunting in the middle of November. It was like minus 25 out, packed all sorts of gear, all sorts of clothes, get there to where we're at. We're supposed to hunt the next morning. I start getting it out. Where, where are my gloves? Where's my toque? I'm going to freeze. What was I thinking? And then you go, oh wait, I was not thinking. You know, you can walk out the door for ministry and you can leave the most important things behind. When you walk out the door for ministry, don't leave what you need behind. God has given you some precious and priceless resources there. His grace and his peace, his help and his peace. And you want to be the type of person that's constantly, God, thank you. I need those. Thank you. Can can I have that? Because he's a God who gives those things. Remember the resources by which you labor. And if, if you're going to labor... Look to God for those resources. Your eternal effectiveness depends on you understanding these nuts and bolts and making them the reality in which you minister. Would you bow with me as we conclude this morning?